From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. This is 1050 Bascom. We have a little bit different show recorded for you this time. Our own department chair, John Zumbrunnen, sat down with a former professor of the poli-sci department, Robert Booth Fowler. Uh, John, can you just talk a little bit about why you chose to record this podcast? Well, Josh, Booth Fowler, for a lot of our listeners, for a lot of our poli-sci alums, he's really something of a legend. Yeah, I mean, as an undergrad, I had heard of his name before, and now working in the poli-sci department, I can feel his name kind of around the... But yeah, I I never got to really know who he was. What sorts of things did you talk about? Well, we talked about the amazingly wide-ranging scholarship that he did. You know, Booth wrote on the history of American liberalism, on Wisconsin electoral history. He wrote on religion and American politics. Mm -hmm. And then Booth was also just an amazing teacher. Mm -hmm. So when I am out talking to alums around the state, around the country, he's probably the faculty member that uh, folks bring up most as having had a, a major impact on them through his teaching. One of the things that we talked about was how he used to embody mm-hmm. the thinkers he taught about. Mm. Oh, so, okay. Right. So he would become Nietzsche on the day that he <laughs> taught Nietzsche. He would become Plato. He would become Marx. He would become Emerson or Thoreau, some of his favorite thinkers. And sure. um, and that's how he came to teach political theory. I think beyond that, he formed connections with his students. Um, you'll hear him talk a little bit about the importance mm-hmm. of connecting with his students and how much he simply liked college students. And I think that had a real impact on a, a lot of our alums. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. I think that's a really great point to bring up is that even though he's gone from our department, he still has a major effect in a monetary way uh, with this fund that's set up as well. That's right, Josh. You know, a couple of years ago, some of uh, Booth's former students came to us and said that they'd really like to do something to honor him. And that group of students then put together a a campaign to create the Booth Fowler professorship in Mm -hmm. our department. Something like 250 or 300 of our alums donated money to endow a professorship, Mm -hmm. which now supports the ongoing work of a current member of the political science department. In fact, the current Booth Fowler professor of political science was on 1050 Bascom a while back. Ellie. Ellie Powell. That's right. All right. Yeah, John, this is great. So uh, let's take a deep breath, keep our eyes up and take a walk up Bascom. to be joined by Booth Fowler, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Science. Booth joined the faculty at UW-Madison in 1967, and in the course of his 35 years of teaching and researching on campus, became one of the most respected and beloved faculty members at UW. When he retired in 2002, our colleague Donald Downs, himself a highly and widely regarded scholar, described Booth as one of the most foremost, if not foremost, teachers in this vast institution. And so today we get to talk to Booth, and I will ask him some questions about his study of political theory and his thoughts on political, moral, and legal questions related to his work. So Booth, we're just thrilled to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. So you spent a lot of time in Wisconsin and studying Wisconsin. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Wisconsin? Well, I hate to say this, but but in my time, (laughs) the way placement kind of (laughs) worked, 
<laughs> was that if you went to certain graduate schools, you were pretty much assured that you would be getting interviews <laughs> from these places. All right. So my department in graduate school was contacted by Wisconsin. And I, I really... Frankly, an Easterner and gone to school in the East and graduate school in the East, we didn't know much about Wisconsin. And it seemed like kind of off the beaten track. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel that way now, you understand, that I did then. And so, but I, yeah, I knew it was well regarded. And of course, I knew nothing about what it meant to be a professor. I mean, I have the impression today that there are all these people giving talks on giving talks and so on. Well, of course, that wasn't the way it was done at my graduate school. You were there to look up, way up, at the professors. Right. And good luck. And so, and I'm not falling, it's just a different system. So I don't know, I have to give a talk. So I did, and uh, it was on my thesis, and I'm sure it was utterly irrelevant. But, <laughs> uh, you know, they sat around, and uh, it was a much smaller department, of course, in those days. And I, I was very shy in those days, and it was difficult. It was one of these things they had at night. I don't know if you have them now, where the people gathered. Maybe you go willingly, but often I went unwillingly. Anyway. So, uh, but I had to go as a, you know, because I was there and I just sort of sat there while all these people chabbered with themselves. And finally I said something and one of what was giving me my future colleagues said, oh, he talks. <laughs> right? so, so I went home saying, this is not going well, but of course, obviously it did. And uh, I mean, enough, maybe they were desperate. I don't know. So the year you started at UW would have been the year of the Dow Chemical Correct. protests. Yes, in the fall. Right. So it was a little difficult. On the other hand, I was young. Right. I think if I, I mean, a number of my senior colleagues, of course, departed in the next several years. Right. <laughs> and uh, there was a certain sympathy. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, I could take it better. Right. Though it, it was stress. But of course, now, you know, it's all... It's all faded into the rosy right. thing of many years later. But at the time, it was quite difficult. But I, I feel I didn't have as much, quite as much difficulty as did the people teaching international relations in poli-sci. Oh, interesting. They had a brutal time. People would mm -hmm. come in before the first day of class. And I don't know how it's done now, but in those days you had ad drop forms. Right. And they would pass out all the ad drop forms to the people in the class and say, uh, drop this class immediately. And uh, the professor would wait at the side till they were up in front. and. Wow. Things like that. Oh, yes. And we had, I had several classes where there was a very ostentatious uh, uh, walkout and so on. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I, I, uh, I also think that a lot of people were intensely interested in thinkers. Mm -hmm. And uh, relationships were formed, some of which I continue today. People really, in many cases, cared. Right. I mean, cared mm -hmm. uh, in the best sense. And uh, that, that, that's, you know, that's the other side. You, you get intensity, and intensity is a plus and a minus, depending on the circumstances. But right. um, I, I did... Uh, um, so when you say that in the in the late 60s, when you came to UW in your first few years of teaching, you were teaching contemporary material. What did that what did that look like? I taught a graduate course, for example, on the history of anarchism. OK. Uh, graduate course on uh, several times on Marx. Well, 
they could be argued that they are very still relevant today. At the undergraduate level, it was teaching a lot of left-of-center stuff that I don't think we do too much with anymore. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, at the more elevated level, we did a lot of Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Camus and people like that. But I wouldn't teach that today. Not, not that it shouldn't be taught, but I think there's more, I get more out of teaching Mill or Nietzsche or Plato and Aristotle. And I think students do as well. Uh, same with American political thought. I made it a rule that I stop in 1945 or 1950. There's a lot to teach before that. So I always explained pretty soon that I'm not relevant. So, <laughs> you know, if, if you're Just looking, get that out of the way yeah, at the right. start. <laughs> well, I think expectations are crucial. Right. I, I think that it, what you set in every aspect of life, but because I'm not relevant, but of course, I don't believe that. I believe it's very relevant, but it's not relevant maybe in the way people might immediately assume is relevant. Right. So so, so, so on, on your work on liberalism mm -hmm. and community, I wonder if you could just start off telling us how you understand the meaning of liberalism in the American context. And I know when, <laughs> sure. when you and I use that term in this context, we're thinking about it in a different way than it's often used in contemporary political discourse. So I think it's always good to just kind of lay down that background of what liberalism means means for a scholar of political theory? Well, I don't know what it means for somebody else, but for me, I thought it basically means a focus on the individual, the individual equal rights, uh, respect in terms of their voices being heard, which we could call concern for democracy. I don't think there's much more to it than that. Mm -hmm. it, it isn't a matter of America's political liberals. Mm -hmm. they, they are liberals in the capital L sense, I mean, but I think that so are most American conservatives. So uh, I, I happen to think that American society today is, is still, uh, in terms of basic values of liberalism, capital L, fairly consensual. Right. And, and how about American conservatism? And again, I'm not, I'm not asking you to speak to the contemporary moment so much as... Um, uh, you know, another uh, another argument out there is whether there's ever really been um, something recognizable as an American conservatism that's separate and distinct from and offers an alternative to liberalism. Yeah. Well, I think that some people like Russell Kirk and so on have tried sure. very hard to create a sort of Burkean European conservative model. And no, I think that uh, much of the conservatism has really been a kind of economically a form of 19th century liberalism. So I don't see that as, as far as fighting over the conservative side, say today, where we're, we're arguing about uh, different particular values and groups. Well, I think that's just people who are not, who disagree about exactly how we should proceed. But I don't see there's anything very, uh, very fundamental. This doesn't mean that the disagreements are not real mm -hmm. or intense, but it does mean that there's a need for perspective. On the one hand, the disagreements are real, they're important, but they're not, in my mind, particularly philosophical. And I would say the same thing while we're talking about this uh, in, in terms of uproar about contemporary politics. If we, There's plenty of other eras in American life that, that were at least as had at least as much uproar and where various people felt that 
the world was coming to an end or uh, will come to an end if if dramatic changes are, are not made, but which they generally mean uh, a different group of people ruling. But no, no, I mean perspective. Maybe it's because I've lived so long. I'm <laughs> <laughs> In your biography on the political science webpage, there's this statement that's attributed to you. So you can tell me whether you really said it or whether someone in the political science department wrote it for you or attributed it to you. It, it, it says that you consider yourself part Enlightenment liberal, talked a little about that, part Burkean conservative, mm-hmm. right? part Emersonian anarchist, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you about that, and part religious existentialist. Mm-hmm. Right? That's true. Um, that, that sums it up. That sums it up. It's a little piece of each of those. Right. And In you, other words, I'm very mixed up. Right. <laughs> and always have been. How do you think about that? Because someone could look at those four things, each of which are a part of you, and say that there's some real tension there or some conflict there. So I guess I wonder... Does a person have to have a single philosophy? No. I'm living witness to that. I, Yeah, oh, sure, there are lots of contradictions. But you know Emerson's statement about foolish contradictions. You don't pay attention to them. I'm not sure it's all so contradictory. I guess I just have different dimensions of, of, of my personality. And as I mentioned to you, I, I'm not really a philosopher. And in that sense, there's where the existentialist comes in. I, I don't believe philosophy <laughs> can answer any of the important questions in life. Maybe they do for some people, but they didn't for me, so mm-hmm. I chose to go the existential route right. and say, well, I really don't know, so I'll just pick. <laughs> and that's how I proceeded. So when you say that Thoreau's not a sweet person, I mean, I'm thinking of, of the essay on civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Well, really, just the tone of that essay mm-hmm. in general. There's a fair amount of anger in that essay. Mm-hmm. Is that there's, there's some of that resentment and anger in Thoreau that's not there in Emerson as much? I think that's a lot of it. I also think that Thoreau basically, when all is said and done, looked at the human being and found him. Uh, morally unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. I don't feel Emerson felt that way. I don't like to face the question, and therefore, I prefer Emerson. (laughs) (laughs) Can I put it to you that way? I I, I will confess I I feel similarly about the two. If I have my choice, I'll take Emerson over Mm -hmm. Thoreau, and there's a, a passage in Emerson somewhere... I carry my giant with me wherever I go, or my giant goes, and he's referring to that which is giant within a human being. As you say, there's just something about Emerson that celebrates humanity in a way that Thoreau doesn't. And the religious existentialist part, you talked a little bit about that, right? That, right? that that is the part of you that doesn't care to engage with the metaphysical question. Right. I, I, I want to step carefully here. All my life, I have been involved in religion of various sorts, and I certainly am now. But that, uh, so I consider myself a friend in that way. But that's, of course, different from <laughs> faith claims, if I can make that distinction. Okay. So yeah. it's it's a very important part uh, of my life and always has been. And But there, there are many reasons uh, which wouldn't necessarily involve going beyond my existential commitments. Okay. If that makes any sense. Sure. So when people start on theology, well, that's nice. Uh, you, you go right ahead, but I have nothing to offer. And in my picture church library, I'm the librarian and... There's a huge, unending shelf of theology books. I try to thin them out within reason. <laughs> you know. Does, it, does admitting some... that on air mean that your position is in danger as church librarian? 
I, I don't think so. I, I think that uh, there's nobody else who wants to do it, frankly. <laughs> and so does that mean, is, is religion then more about practice and community and less you said about faith claims? Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Uh, yeah, I think that's part of it. I think the, uh, for me, uh, beauty is very, very important. Mm. And so the kind of religion that is works and worked for me is one which I see and participate in what I would call beauty. Mm -hmm. So, and beauty is in this form very, very spiritual. I, I just, I don't know why, but I think I'm a very spiritual person. Mm -hmm. I hear Emerson there too, a certain sweetness in Emerson that is also about us recognizing beauty mm -hmm. in the world, right? I, I yeah, and I, I think as I've gotten older, I, I think I've become much more open to, I mean, this sounds so pretentious, but as to beauty in the world. And, uh, well, maybe I have a little more time to look at it. <laughs> and I said, God grade those damn papers. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do, I do. <laughs> when there's a stack of papers on your desk, it's hard to see the beauty uh, sometimes and, and when you can look up from that. So I'm often struck by around election time as a political science professor. You know, there's a lot of talk that we should encourage students to vote talk to them about the reasons for voting. We should look to see if they have their I voted today stickers on. Mm -hmm. And I'm often caught up by that because I, I, I often find myself saying to students that they should certainly consider voting. Mm -hmm. I vote, mm -hmm. but that if they can articulate a good reason for not voting, mm -hmm. that's good enough for me. I'm curious if you think I'm I'm engaged in malpractice when I tell students that. I won't comment on your <laughs> observations, you. <laughs> though I could. But, <laughs> but I couldn't care less whether they vote is my response. I mean, that's up to them. I think the opportunity to vote must be available in, in a reasonable fashion. Mm -hmm. But I think if people don't want to vote, well, then they don't want to vote. I mean, I think there's a civic duty argument for voting and maybe for urging them to. But on the other hand, the evidence is overwhelming that 999 out of a million, that one vote will make no difference whatsoever. So, you know, that that's not a reason to urge them. But I mean, if people want to vote, let them vote if they don't want to vote. And that's my policy, too, I might add. Uh, I, I vote yes. if I wish. And if I don't, I don't. I'm comfortable with that. I mean, the opportunity has to be there, as I say. Yeah. Back on what you said about what's most interesting to you about elections, right? Sort of what they reveal about people. Mm -hmm. They reveal to us something about the electorate. So I have first a very broad question that links back to your particular interest in political theory, and that is, do you think elections tell us something about how people answer that question, how then shall we live? Yes, I do. Elections reveal that mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then from that, because you also talked about the way in which increasing partisan identification and maybe the increasing intensity of partisan identification in some places, mm -hmm. does that mean that elections are telling us less about people and about communities and about um, the general sense of how we shall live than they used to tell us? I don't know. I think that uh, maybe it tells us somewhat different things, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I don't know that it tells us less. And again, I would point out that intensity rises and falls over right. time. And right. uh, I don't uh, obviously give a lot of credence to uh, the idea that uh, the world is coming to an end tomorrow, though it could. Uh, it could. <laughs> I have to grant that. I mean, I can't I don't right. I don't know. But right. Uh, right. I, 
I've been through a lot of presidents, mm-hmm. quite frankly, sure. and a lot of crises. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're still staggering along. And uh, people say it's it's not pretty. It's often ugly. It's, it's terribly messy. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, this, this is true, uh, but it's not unique. Uh, and it may be... This is part of the, you know, this is what democracy is like. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't have enormous expectations, so that probably helps. Right. <laughs> I'll be honest and say I, I'm a little worried about some idealists in politics because I think some uh, throughout history have gotten the idea that their way was the only way. And a lot of people die that way. I'd rather see the ugly pushing and shoving of American democracy than the true way, whatever it might be, which, right. of course, I've already admitted I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> Can I just invite you to say a little bit about Wisconsin in that context and maybe the what you've learned? Well, that's a that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it changes over time yes. too, right? Because things change and so it's right. going to be a changing story over yeah. time, but I'm I'm just Well, curious. I think there there are a lot of factors. I mean, today, uh, say the clichés that we all know, there obviously are some very different ideas about how to proceed, uh, how, how to organize uh, society, and that's very intensely reflected. And there are a lot of uh, different sets of fears out there. Uh, in Wisconsin. And I think that's an aspect that is is very much part of politics. Different sets of traditions. It's a quite a divided situation here, but it's not unusual. The intensity may be just now, but there have been other times when it's been very intense also. We think back to the La Follette era. The politics in some ways was more intense because you had three parties then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you You had the progressives, you had the who were all, remember, Republicans. Right. And you had the establishment Republican Party and you had the Democrats and, and they were fighting like hell. So, you know, there there have been a lot of different visions. I think it's 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 quite interesting that we're getting at the moment a, a geographically sharper division than we've had in the past. And I don't know where that goes necessarily. I do know that the recent gubernatorial election, as you probably realize, is virtually 99 plus a carbon copy of the 2016 presidential election in Wisconsin. Right. So we have uh, just a few thousand votes would have made a difference either way, either election. So we have some, you know, at the moment, some coalitions that are out there that seem fairly firm and who are, I think it's fair to say, against each other. So sometimes I hear people say that they learn from their students in a meaningful way and mm-hmm. that their students teach them things that are relevant to their research. And sometimes I hear people say, yeah, that's not really true. I don't really learn from my students in the sense of, oh, I have an idea there that I'm going to now be able to bring to my research and it's going to make a difference there. So where do you come down on that? Well, I am a little uncomfortable uh, giving you a full answer to this because in a previous conversation, you told me you did learn to your students. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd be very careful. (laughs) Well, I think at times, as I've suggested regarding, for example, religion and politics, I, I learned a lot. I think sometimes I learned a tremendous amount from students in 
when I taught Wisconsin voting history because, mm-hmm. of course, they often did papers on various areas. And, right. and so in this way, unquestionably, I, I learned and I used their stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're acknowledging it. And uh, I, one of the best classes I had was about six or eight men and women who worked on helping me write my book on Wisconsin voting history. Right. Tremendous learning from them. Did I learn from them in discussing Plato? No. <laughs> right. So I'm just going to ask a couple questions that are sort of what are you up to now kinds of questions, mm-hmm, sure. right? What do you read most today? Do you read fiction, history, philosophy, Thoreau? Uh, I read quite a bit of fiction. Okay. Especially foreign authored mysteries are, huh? are big with me. Okay. Very interested in uh, stories of growing up. Hmm. So I guess I'm at a stage of life where I reflect to some extent on my own. Yeah. And these seem to connect with me. Any and particularly good examples of fiction that you've read lately? Recently, I've been actually reading some science fiction. Oh. And I'm now reading a book by Ursula Le Guin called The Left Hand of Darkness or something. And uh, I this is a new thing for me, but I'm sort of exploring that a little bit. Then I read a lot of history, a lot of biography. I'm quite interested in uh, migrations and especially ethnic cleansings and so on. <laughs> it gets back to my ethnic interests. Right. And World War II has a lot of that, so I often sure. read a lot about that. And I belong to several book groups, and including one which has three other retired professors of political science from here. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. well, that's fascinating. Do you mind telling us who's in your reading group of uh, former poli sci Well, yeah. It, uh, uh, Don Downs, okay. John Witte, Bernie Cohen. Wow. Okay. And that's me. So there's four of us. That's a, it sounds like it could be a pretty lively and intense reading group. <laughs> well, me. it is, but we don't necessarily read that many much about politics. Okay. A lot of it is uh, biography or we have several scientists so we've been reading quite a bit about science, and uh, some of which I understand and most of which I don't. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm very interested. There's so much to learn yeah. in life. Freed from the professional side, I can explore more. And I'm also at the stage in life where I read about 50 pages. If I don't like it, closed. <laughs> Well, Booth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I know that hearing from you is going to mean a lot to just a huge number of UW alums out there. And I also want to say just on a personal level, as a faculty member, and in particular as a political theorist in this department and at this university, and and I don't say this lightly at all, you're a real inspiration. And I also want to say just your account of a life spent learning is inspiring and and just incredibly appealing. So thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure.